Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on what the ancients thought lurked beneath the waves in antiquity, particularly the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks. And this topic is going to vary from huge sea creatures, terrifying beasts that apparently fought with fishermen in the rough waters, to dolphins and their enduring friendship with humans. Now, to talk through this topic, I was delighted to be joined by Emily Kneebone from the University of Nottingham. Emily has recently written a book all about an epic piece of poetry called the Haleutica, written by a figure called Oppian in the 2nd century AD and dedicated to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And this piece of poetry was all about fishing, but also about the sea creatures that lurked, or what they thought, lurked beneath the waves. This was a fascinating topic, and it was great to get Emily on the show to talk through it all. Here's Emily. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Now, this is a remarkable subject. This is the story about a Greek poem written in Roman times about the sea world, the sea creatures, and how the ancients viewed the sea. That's right. It's sort of a study, an exploration of the marine imagination and the sort of alternative uh, marine world. And no such thing as a stupid question starting it all off. Let's look at the background first of all. Emily, who was Oppian? We actually don't know very much at all. We can date the poem itself. So he wrote a five-book poem on the sea and fishing and the creatures that live in the sea. And we know because he dedicates it to Marcus Aurelius, sort of mentions him in every book, he talks at one point about his co-regency with Commodus, which dates it to 177 to 180 AD. So that's what we have to go on. He also talks about being from Cilicia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Those facts really are all we have. And we know that we have a few ancient references to Oppian. So Athenaeus, who writes an enormous dinner party, which features innumerable fish and discussions of fish, talks about being a little bit beyond Oppian's time, so a little bit after Oppian. And we have epigrams and so on that talk about Oppian. Beyond that, though, that's all we have, really. We have fictionalised ancient biographies, but nothing about Oppian himself. What's really interesting, what you were saying there, is that forget the Iliad, forget the Odyssey. This is an epic ancient Greek poem being written in Roman times in the 2nd century AD. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the story of 
epic poetry in the imperial period is really undertold. We think of this as a period in which the novel develops, in which we get witty, dazzling satires, you know, things like Lucian, or the oratory that, that people very much associated with this period of the second sophistic, kind of the Greek world under Rome. But actually, at the same time, there's enormous amounts of poetry being produced both didactic poetry like this poetry, aiming to teach you something, but also narrative epic, you know, heroes and gods and all kinds of poetry. And it's also really interesting what you're saying that if you're saying Oppian is from Cilicia and this area in the Roman Empire, this is far, far away from the nucleus of the Roman Empire in Italy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of material from this period that comes from well beyond Italy or Greece. This is a period in which Greek identity and debates about Greekness are taking place all over the Hellenised Roman Empire. And is Cilicia renowned for fishing? Well, yes, there have been some studies looking at the kind of fishing that takes place on the, the Turkish coast. It's also renowned for piracy, which might give us a flavour of the dangers and the hostility and the chaotic forces at work at sea, perhaps. At one point, Oppian refers to the banks of Cilicia and the association of the red-stained earth, which he says is from the blood of Typhon, the monster that Zeus killed. And so this is the Cilician, uh, the sort of Carician caves in Cilicia. So he's clearly interested in this kind of moment, the ways in which Cilicia can stake a great claim to these pivotal moments in Greek literary history. So we have Hesiod talking about Zeus's destruction of Typhon, the sort of monster who tried to defeat him, overthrow him. Him. And so there's clearly a, a sense of local pride, local identity. And he associates that with fishing, he says, that we have there, the fact that we have Hermes helping out Hermes and Pan helping out there being associated with fishing. So he claims that this has a mythological facet to it as well, the idea of Cilicia and fishing, which is interesting. Very interesting. And you mentioned earlier the Cilician pirates and the dangers possibly of going out to sea in this part of the world. And Sea fishing in antiquity, it's not the pleasant pastime, the retirement person's dream that we perhaps often associate fishing with today. That's right, absolutely. So we think of fishing as something almost a kind of philosophical, reflective pursuit that you could do on a Sunday when you have time to meditate on a grassy bank. In the ancient world, this is partly because we're talking about sea fishing, which was immensely dangerous, as some of our early Greek literature, as Hesiod says in the works and days, and says, don't go anywhere near ships, they are lethal. And so it's partly sea fishing, but it's partly also that this is a quite a banausic activity to carried out by fishermen who don't have a high social status in the ancient world. What's so interesting about Oppian is he takes this world of fishing, which wouldn't have been an elite reflective leisure time pursuit in the main, and then turns it into an epic foray, a tale of adventures and very erudite literary illusions. That's really interesting how if fishing was not seen as very high status job in the ancient world that Oppian is creating this poem, but he's also giving it to the person with the highest status in the whole of the empire, which is the emperor. Yeah, absolutely. And he actually talks a little bit about the emperor's own fishing. And that's fascinating for its juxtaposition with the dangerous world of the sea fisher. So at the beginning of book one, he talks about how awful it is when you're a fisherman out. You've got this paltry little boat that's sort of threatening to fall apart at any moment. And there's a storm coming and there are sea monsters beneath you and how frightening that can be. And then he cuts straight to the emperor in his quite sanitised fish preserves. So, you know, an area of the sea that was clearly marked out as his to fish in. He it talks about him being rowed out by attendants who've been feeding the fish and the fish just hop onto his hook in delight at being caught by the emperor. 
So there are kind of tropes of how you praise an emperor there and the idea that the emperor is in control of the natural world. But there's also quite an unsettling juxtaposition with the realities and this ideological glorification of the emperor's power over the sea there. And keeping on the realities and what you mentioned just there about the possibility of storms and tempests above and sea creatures below, the psychological impact of it all in antiquity, we were talking about this a bit before we started recording, about being this poor sailor in this little wooden raft, perhaps out to sea, having a fear that you might have this storm descending on you in any moment, but also the fact that you don't know what is beneath the waves, whether there are these terrifying sea creatures that you've heard about in these myths. Absolutely right. So he talks quite a lot in the poem to that first book about being able to look out over the sea but not into it so you've got no idea what's skulking underneath the surface and so that might be enormous monstrous creatures that are ready to devour you but it's also an epistemological problem you know how do you know this is a poem that sets out to tell you what's under the sea what kind of creatures there are zoological facts about them but that's very hard to determine because we just don't know what's in the the sea deep and even nowadays we have nature programs devoted to the monstrous creatures that we didn't know about under the sea so in antiquity it was you know a hundredfold as mysterious and strange a realm oh absolutely if you've got planet earth nowadays and you're still being amazed by what sea creatures lurk in the depths of the ocean you can only imagine what it must have been like for people on the sea even if it is just the mediterranean over two thousand years ago yeah And he talks at one point about the dangers when humans go too far into the sea. So he says that humans have actually only explored up to a very finite point in the depths of the sea. And then later on, he has divers going in, sponge divers, who end up getting eaten by the monsters of the depths. And so they're on a rope and the rope is brought up and it's this very sort of macabre but quite poignant scene where the sponge diver has been devoured by something mysterious and horrible and his companions are terrified and sort of row away in uh, lamentation. Well, let's dive into Oppian's poem now. And first of all, it's tied to the Haleutica. Why is it called the Haleutica? What does this word mean? Ah, so this is things to do with sea, sea fishing, essentially. So we have a series of poems from the ancient world on parallel subjects. So one called the Synergetica on hunting. We have one on bird catching and one on fishing. So we know that this was a genre of ancient writing about sea fishing. So it's a genre of ancient writing about sea fishing. And how is it composed? So it's five books of hexameters. So the same meter as epic. This would have been counted as epic in the ancient world. And it's what we call didactic epic, which means that it purports to teach you how to catch fish or two books about fish themselves and three books on catching fish. So it's epic poetry in the sense that these are beautiful hexameters and it's using the language, the archaising, slightly old-fashioned, deliberately sometimes elevated language of epic. It's got a grandiosity to it, but at the same time it's got an educational drive too. It's teaching you something. And we don't know very much about the compositional history of the poem. We know that straight away afterwards it proliferates and we have huge numbers of manuscripts and we have even papyri and things, but we don't know much more about the circumstances of composition than that. But it's also constructed in this very clever way, the use of language in it all, but it's it's also educational at the same time. It's supposed to tell you more about fish and fishing. Yeah, that's right. And we know that this was an enormously popular genre of didactic poetry in the ancient world. So think of something like Lucretius's poem on the nature of things and Virgil's poem, uh, the Georgics, for instance. 
but it's not a genre that we really understand nowadays. With all the ancient didactic poetry, people say, well, okay, it's didactic, but what's it supposed to teach exactly? Because why would you have a treatise or a manual in epic verse? That seems a very strange thing to us. So we have epigrams from the ancient world, from what are clearly a school context, which talk about the glorious feast, the abundant feast the Dopians laid out, and also complaining a bit about having to <laughs> um, read so much of this poetry. We also have um, ancient commentaries, scolia, that are clearly from a school context. So we know that it was taught, but we don't know what was taught from it. We don't know because the hexameters are incredibly elegant, are really beautiful, really rich in imagery and metaphors, and often very, very elegant language. So it might have been the language, but I think it more probable that it was kind of wider truths about the world. So partly it purports to teach you about the mechanisms of fishing, so what kind of bait you might use, partly about different kinds of fish, but really the information you get there isn't systematic or comprehensive enough for it to be really about that. So you couldn't actually catch many fish based solely on the information here, and ancient fishermen couldn't read. So <laughs> as with much didactic poetry, same thing with Hesiod or Virgil's poems on farming exactly the same quandary. So they give you a tantalising glimpse of the life of a farmer or the ways in which agriculture fits into kind of the wider cosmic order, but you couldn't really run a farm on the basis of that poetry. Yes, yeah, very interesting how this poetry might have been relayed in elite schools of education where actually it was perhaps more useful for someone a bit lower down, a fisherman who would maybe want to know some of these techniques that Oppian is telling them about. That's true, I think, up to a point, but there are certain points where Oppian says, so I don't think he was himself an expert in fishing. His information comes from textbooks, comes from manuals and things. And once or twice he says things like, well, you know, if you really want to know to the, the details about this, just ask a fisherman. Okay. <laughs> His role, as he sees it, is to think about the place of humans and animals, to think about the sea, the kind of the rich symbolism of the sea, to think about things like power relations and the imperial world. And the fish are a mechanism for thinking through some of these questions. But what you get out of this poem is much more than simple technicalities of how you catch a grey mullet, for instance. Well, let's go into that right now then. So what behaviours does Oppian talk about about the fish and the fish world that we can then see parallels with with the human world? Almost every behaviour that fish have actually. It's a wonder, it's almost a thought experiment really in taking a creature that seems so unlikely, so sea creatures, and saying well in what respect are they like and unlike us? And it turns out that they are so heavily anthropomorphised throughout the poem, or at least we see so many parallels between fish and other creatures, that that's really an ideological position that Oppian, the poet, has. And he talks at one point about the interconnectedness of the different parts of the world. He says you can't really understand the sea without thinking about the land or the air. Everything is interrelated. And he structures his poem in quite an interesting way. So book one is really about the habits and the habitats of fish and mating practices and things. Book two is about guile and hostility. So the way that fish are always eating one another and they're just going after one another and the ways in which they can elude or catch one another. Then book three is very much about their greed. So this is about how you catch fish by using bait, but it becomes a wider issue of appetites and humans as well as fish we need to kind of learn to rein in their appetites otherwise you'll meet much the same end as these fish. And book four is about lust. So again, it's about how you catch fish, 
And for instance, you might dangle a female fish in the water and the fish come flocking, or it might be that with the merle wrasse, you dangle a little prawn and the merle wrasse thinks that this prawn has designs on its multiple wives um, and it comes you know, to attack the prawn. So these are essentially lessons based on reining in one's more bestial urges, as it were, that apply equally to humans and fish. And actually that example of the merle wrasse leads the poet to talk about analogous practices in humans and saying this is why polygamy is bad. Because if you look at Eastern tribes, he says, that engage in polygamy, they're always just waging war against one another. It can never lead to good things if one man has many, many wives. And then book five is about enormous sea creatures. So you can see that the structure of the poem, um, particularly those three middle books on hostility, greed and lust, are very much geared around foregrounding that parallel between human and animal behaviour. And how does he use his language to convey those parallels between these, perhaps I would say, fish vices and human behaviour? He does it partly by using the same language of both. And it's so interesting that he is not using dry scientific language. So that there are debates even nowadays in the sciences as to how do you describe animal behaviour? Is it right to use the language that we've developed for humans? We talk about jealousy or play or rape or all these kinds of ideas that we have that describe human society. How far do we want to project those onto the animal world? And, you know, in, in the sciences, of course, in much of the 20th century, people erred on the side of a parsimonious explanation saying we shouldn't attribute to animals any kind of higher cognitive state than you know we have to essentially and nowadays many scientists and ethologists are rethinking those and saying well actually what happens if we do attribute higher much more human-like motivations or behaviors to animals i think we see exactly these same kinds of debates playing out in opian actually that he talks for instance even from the opening lines of the poem he says okay we're going to look at the lives and loves and friendships and enmities of fish and he talks about the marriages of fish for instance and so he regularly talks not just about mating of fish but about fish having suitors and about bridegrooms and marriage beds and things like that so he's deliberately pushing that idea that there is no hard and fast separation between human life and the lives even of fish, which we would assume to be much less like us than other kinds of species that we regularly interact with. I mean, many of us would see, you know, many of our own characteristics reflected in, say, a pet dog, but fish seem to us to be a very different kind of world. And Oppian is challenging that, I think, quite profoundly. Well, it's especially a different kind of world when we think the fish thrive in that environment beneath the sea where a human could never be able to thrive. Obviously, no gills and all that. But of course, we thrive above the sea in the world we are today, but where a fish couldn't thrive. Absolutely. And I think that's partly what makes the sea such a good space for thinking about a model of society that is both like and unlike the human. So it's unlike insofar as we don't have the same laws in the sea, he says. There's no justice at sea. All the fish are constantly trying to eat one another. But in a way, that makes it quite a good reflection of human society because you don't have politeness and etiquette and laws holding you back. You see these kind of really base urges of destruction and lust and greed and things play out with immediate effect and with a, a real sense that this is where humankind could go if we're not careful. So there are many, many similes that draw exactly those parallels. So the most striking feature of the poem is these incredible similes. They're just so vivid, so lively, so original in many of them. So some of them look back to earlier epic traditions, but some of my favourites, there's when the merle ras is watching his many, many mates give birth, he's sort of hovering around like an anxious grandmother waiting for the birth of the first grandchild. Or there's an episode where an octopus is attacking a crayfish 
part again of one of these tales about the savagery of the sea. And Oppin says that this is like when there's a drunken banqueter who's coming out of dinner and he's sort of singing a slightly tipsy song, it's not very much in tune, staggering out, and there's a thief lurking in the alleyway in the darkness, kind of skulking and waiting to pounce and strip off all the banqueter's sort of clothing and take his wallet and things like that. And so these are kind of incredibly vivid similes and they're both very captivating, but they also very often have a deeper point to make, which is precisely that we cannot think that we as humans are divorced from the practices that you see play out everywhere in the sea. There is a very profound sense of likeness between human and animal life. Well, it seems like the simile and the metaphor, they seem these prime ways that Oppian uses to emphasise the parallels between the maritime world and the human world. Absolutely. And not just the maritime world either. He often compares fish to terrestrial animals as well. So again, this sense that you know all parts of the world need to be seen against one another in order to be made sense of. Now, you mentioned there the octopus and the crayfish, and you were talking about hostility and certain creatures not being able to get along with one another. Emily, what is the story of the crayfish, the octopus and the moray eel? that were thought in antiquity to loathe one another above all other species. So he says that all fish have a tendency to eat one another. There's only one exception to that, and he showers on praise for the vegetarian grey mullet. But all others, he says, hate one another, but there are no more hostile enemies than the octopus, the eel and the crayfish. And it's a particularly interesting group because we see it recur in many contexts in the ancient world. So we have lots of authors, so Aristotle and Pliny and others talk about Athenaeus talks about it, but also in things like mosaics and wall paintings across the Roman Empire. So it clearly had taken on a paradigmatic quality by Oppian's time. And I think the reason for that is you've got these three species. So we have the eel eats the octopus, the octopus eats the crayfish and the crayfish eats the eel. So it's got a kind of circularity to it, almost a philosophical harmony to it. And they can do that because they've got complementary characteristics. So the octopus is slippery and can change colour and can hide from most things, but the eel just pounces and devours the octopus. And the crayfish is prickly and so it can eat the eel but it gets eaten by the octopus that just strangles it and scoops out its flesh so it's a slightly gruesome but philosophical reflection so aristotle calls it peripatia the sudden reversal of fortune the same way that we get of these reversals in tragedy so it takes on this idea that you can't at sea ever be in power for long You might think that as a species you have the upper hand, but the sea is a space of chaos and fluctuations and overriding hostility. And he says the same thing of the dolphin, which is the king of the fish. But he says even dolphins don't have a stable rule. They're attacked by bonitos. And we have a long, long story of the bonitos attacking a dolphin. So this is a sphere of fluctuating chaos, unlike the stable rule in some ways of the Roman imperial world, he says. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. definitely want to get onto dolphins in a moment but you mentioned there this whole idea of power and it's very interesting how Oppian is using the study this work on fishing in the maritime world to talk about power relations and for instance of the eel of the crayfish and of the octopus to try and reflect on the human power relations that's absolutely right so there is both a sense that what you see in the marine world is a power in its barest form. You see creatures that are able to overpower others because of their strength, but also because of their ingenuity. We have these moments where you have one almost gloating over another. So when the eel catches the octopus, the eel says, ha, huh, you thought because the octopuses in antiquity were proverbially good at camouflaging themselves. So the sort of chameleon of the sea. And she said, ha. Huh, you think you were able to outwit me, but I've got you now. So this is moment of, you know, real reveling in that power. And that's partly the kind of language that you get of a Homeric warrior when they're about to kill their enemy and things like that. But it's also this broader sense of the desire to overpower other species. And that's mapped on too to the idea of fishing as an exercise in power. So the fishermen outwits the fish either by force or by trickery, much like the fish are doing to one another. So there's a parallelism there. But partly what you get with fishing is a sense that human beings are able to plan, to realise the relationship between cause and effect, the consequences of their actions. Whereas fish are not, they just take the bait because their urges, their appetites are so strong that they're unable to see much further down the line. So there's a way in which fishing too plays into this sense of the sea as a sphere where you're really examining power relations. And fishing had long in antiquity become emblematic of different kinds of power. So you get in things like erotic contexts with the lover and the beloved, you often hunting images are used, but fishing too. But also things like us talking about fishing for compliments for instance. They talk about this in antiquity, that people taking the bait and things like that. So it's used of human relations too as a metaphor, and Oppian really exploits that. Because fishing also seems to be very common in ancient comedies. 
That's right. So ancient comedies are utterly obsessed by fish. And I think there's a question as to why do we find fish so funny? There's something that's very, one level, quite banal about fish. So if you leave them out, they get sort of slimy and they start to smell and things like that. And that lends itself to a comic idea. But there's also a sense you get things like epic parodies. So from the 4th century BC, we have figures like Matro of Patani, who has an epic parody of a dinner party where you have things like an eel being carried in and described as a white-armed goddess, for instance. And the speaking of this creature is actually it's sizzling as it's being cooked. And there's a deliberate juxtaposition of that high epic register and the banality of fish, that gulf between the two is quite important. And there's also a fascination with fish, I think, as objects of desire in gastronomic circles. So James Davidson has written a, a very interesting book about this, Courtesans and Fish Cakes. And we see it all over ancient gastronomic and comic literatures that there was this frenzy to eat the tastiest morsels or it's a space of conspicuous consumption. So people are ostentatiously buying very expensive fish, displaying it to dinner guests, greedily eating as much as they can and things like that. And there's a lot of discussion about which species are the most ostentatious ones. And part of that too is the fact that fish are marked out as different from other kinds of things that you can eat. So in the ancient world, almost all meat that was eaten came from a sacrificial context. And so they're kind of elaborate, ritualised forms of slaughtering these creatures. And it was usually a communal affair. So you would divide up a larger animal amongst participants. It's a way of bringing people together as a group. Fish, you don't get sacrificed. There's occasional references to the sacrifice of tuna. But in almost all cases, fish are for personal consumption, which puts them in a different category from something that is an offering to a god and a way of bringing group together. So fish are kind of differentiated. And there's a lot of discussion about things like in the Homeric epics, heroes don't eat fish. So again, Athenaeus and others discuss this at their dinner party at great length. You know, why is it that we have heroes eating meat and endless, endless sacrifices in the Iliad, but in only in the direst of circumstances will they ever catch fish when they're marooned on an island, say? Yes, if I was hoping for good winds sailing from Richborough to Boulogne, I wouldn't sacrifice a mackerel. <laughs> Completely understand what you mean there. But it is interesting. Was it very much this idea that the more difficult a fish was to catch, the more valuable it was seen as being by the elites and by ancient Roman or ancient Greek society? Yeah, there are a number of issues surrounding fish. I mean, they would have been expensive. We have a sense that yeah, there was a huge amount of effort, particularly for certain species that have to be caught individually. It's different when you can catch huge numbers in a net. And I think that plays a part as well. They don't last for very long. And of course, you get methods of preserving fish and the fish sauce going as well. But fresh fish was certainly, and eels were a particular luxury. And we have references both in Greek and Roman contexts to the price and the sense that people are really showing off their consumption of eels. And then in the Roman context, you get this kind of absolute mania for artificial fish ponds and the keeping of fish as a display of wealth and luxury as well. That's then bringing fish from being in quite a dangerous environment, especially if they were sea creatures, but into a very peaceful environment, very similar to, let's say, river fishing or something like that, where the whole elements of this being a dangerous enterprise are removed. They might be 
removed or it might be a reveling in being able to take control of that a little bit like when you have sort of arena concerts and you have a sense of play acting of the dangers of these creatures you know it might be lions and things but you're controlling that environment you might get the same thing if you get a fish pond and you've got these creatures but you've got them contained you've got them in your garden and things but we do have other examples we have an example of one crisis who kept a pet murray eel and dressed it up in jewelry and sort of lavished all his attention this and people found this utterly ludicrous this anthropomorphization of an incredibly hostile creature if you've ever seen a murray eel they are terrifying things so, so clearly that's something that people are playing with or concerned about that juxtaposition of control pets domestic environments and the terrors of the sea absolutely well let's go back to the Haleutica and the can we say the climax of his work book five of his epic poem Yeah, absolutely. We go from discussing smaller scale creatures in the first four books to enormous creatures, so Kerta or kind of sea monsters or big things. So that would include things like dolphins, but also sharks, whales, sea monsters and so on. And what's the key story in this book that is so fascinating, this contest between fishermen and insanely huge sea beast? Yeah, so we have almost the first half of book five dedicated to a Moby Dick style quest for an enormous sea creature. And it's a terrifying beast. We never know quite what it is. It seems to be somewhere between a whale and a shark. And I think the idea that it's something that is a composite mythical beast that we don't actually know what it looks like even because it's beneath the water until it's dragged out onto land and then at that point everybody from around comes to marvel at it and the, you know some are marveling at its tusks at its spine at its size at its belly and it's so terrifying that there's an onlooker who says oh I never ever want to go into the sea if that's the kind of thing that you get there just keep me safe on land please don't make me go out there so it becomes kind of emblematic of these enormous monstrous creatures that lurk in the sea It very much sounds like the ancient history's version of the Moby Dick hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got this almost cosmic scope there, the idea that it takes on a symbolism of the dangers and the horrors of the sea. And it's invested with a whole series of monstrous allusions. So it's compared to Typhon, to Charybdis, to implicitly to figures like um, Polyphemus, the Cyclops, to all kinds of cosmic battles that you get in epic poetry. So it really becomes the emblem of the sea's ferocity. Well, you mentioned all those mythological figures there. So let's go on to myths and sea creatures, because just thinking of Greek myths and perhaps like the Odyssey and the Charybdis who sucks the whirlpool and all that, it is filled with all these stories of these mythical sea creatures that do battle with some of the heroes of antiquity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's so interesting about Oppian Sea and the sea monster is a creature that fits into this pattern as well, is that you can read it on two levels. You can read it as fishermen catching just a bigger version of a fish in the way that you get throughout the rest of the poem, or you can see it as mankind against this sort of huge mythical threat, the terrors of the chaotic or the disordered or however you want to see it. And I think you can see that with the sea throughout the poem. So sometimes you see that this is the sea in a specific location, it might be off the shores of Sicily or something, but sometimes it's the sea of Jason and the Argonauts kind of voyaging, or it's the sea that Odysseus sort of battles or sort of struggles with on his adventures on the way back from Troy. And you often get these parallels between the fisherman and Odysseus himself about the 
these are figures who have to engage in trickery to outwit their opponents, that they're kind of being buffeted across the seas, that the fish themselves are much like the baddies of the Odyssey, so the suitors and the foolish companions who are again indulging their appetites and not being able to foresee the long-term consequences of their decisions. So the companions we told right from the beginning of the Odyssey, eat the cattle of the sun and will be punished, and the suitors similarly devouring Odysseus's possessions and they'll get what's coming to them. And we get, in many instances, the fish that are have a wonderful description of sea bream where the, the fisherman puts down a little basket onto the seabed and the bream gather in there, but they're described very much like the suitors of Odysseus, where they're sort of sitting in a basket. You know, it's a home that's not theirs to own. They're consuming somebody else's possessions. They're sort of sleeping. They're kind of indolent and greedy and lazy. And only too late do they realise what they've let themselves in for as the fisherman hauls the basket up. So is it fair to say that for many sea creatures, there seems to be portrayed in literature a natural hostility between certain sea creatures and humans. That's right. So I think that most of these sea creatures seem to be characterised by their hostility towards almost everything. (laughs) And so this is a recurring theme in the poem, is that the sea is a sphere of fluctuating power relations because there isn't a stability because everybody tries to eat everybody else or is mostly trying to not be eaten too. But this comes out sometimes in the relationship between fishermen and fish. So for instance, the sea monster is clearly going to eat those humans if he can catch them. If they don't catch him first, he'll simply devour the boat and its inhabitants. But there are other creatures that have a slightly more positive relationship with human beings. So we have, for instance, one in this book four, which is about lust and the loves of fish. We have some fish that have this real affection for goats and are always frolicking about the the hooves of goats when their goat herds bring them down to the shore to bathe. And I think probably the most troubling episode in the poem is the fisherman that befriends a certain kind of fish and goes down and feeds them day after day after day and they have a kind of a bond of loyalty and they will follow the fisherman in his boat they'll go where he points and it's described very much in terms of a guest and a host exchanging toasts to one another enjoying reciprocal bonds of friendship and hospitality and then of course the fisherman betrays them by catching them he just sort of scoops them up when they become as it were kind of tame and so on and that there were a few moments where it's the humans that seem to behave more savagely than the fish, which have a sense of trust or of good moral qualities. And the absolute epitome of that is the dolphin. So we're told that dolphins are sacred to Poseidon and they must not be caught and they must not be slaughtered or eaten. And most humans don't. And there are tales of so dolphin tales were absolutely huge in antiquity. We have endless anecdotes of these remarkable bonds of friendship between humans and dolphins. They survive in all kinds of sources and we have visual representations as well. And some dolphins help the fishermen by herding fish into the net. But we have this one, again in book five, a very troubling episode where Thracians and the inhabitants of Byzantium slaughter dolphins. And they do that by, they catch a baby dolphin And once they've caught that, the mother just sort of lets herself be caught as well. But she, we have a whole speech put into her mouth that says, oh, look, humans no longer respect the sanctity of our relationship. They have no respect for the gods. And we're told that these are people who would happily kill their own families and things as well. So there's a moment where humans there are clearly breaching a sacred bond of loyalty and respect between 
humans and sea creatures. And dolphins were thought formerly to have been human, to kind of have been metamorphosed into dolphins, which is a mark of that same profound similarity of mind between humans and dolphins, such that to kill them is really sacrilegious. Nevertheless, it is interesting how this bond between humans and dolphins, this idea of companionship, has existed down to this present day. And it seems that it was also there in antiquity. Yeah, absolutely. So we have lots and lots of stories of things like Orion and the dolphin or dolphins love of music. We have the idea that dolphins come on to land to be buried. Lots of these stories kind of seem to be reflecting on what we might think of as dolphins mammalian status. The fact that they are the fish, if you think about the categories of fish and human, the creature that comes closest to the human there is the dolphin. And so in the ancient world that gets thought through as metamorphosis. So we get that in things like the Homeric Hymn to Dionysus. We have lots of visual representations of humans being turned into dolphins. So clearly that's a way of kind of thinking through the sophistication, the bonds between humans and dolphins. And we have stories of friendship and even sometimes a kind of hint of erotic relations between humans and dolphins in a lot of these ancient stories. Well, I mean, absolutely. One of my favourite coins from antiquity is the coin of Tarentum, where it shows on one side the dolphin of the city because it's so linked to that city's mythical foundation of this figure who is shipwrecked. Is, is it he's shipwrecked and then he's brought and he finds the city? Or is it something along those lines? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and dolphins were thought very often to rescue shipwrecked human beings and to sort of carry them on their backs and so on. Yeah. And you mentioned just their visual depictions of dolphins, but also other sea creatures, which brings you on to my next area that I'd like to really ask about. And that is mosaics, because we seem to see... Even in Britain, at Bigna Roman Villa, at Fishbourne Palace, we see these depictions of sea creatures loud and clear on these beautiful mosaics. Absolutely. And there's clearly a fascination with the bounty of the sea and the huge range of different species that you get in the sea. We have things like fish plates as well, depicting lots of different kinds of species in really minute detail often. And there's a fascination both with this sense of the way in which the sea is teeming with creatures that are edible, but also weird and wonderful. And what we get on mosaics too is also a sense of the kind of the symbolism of the sea, when we have very often marine deities and things depicted on mosaics as well. And on these mosaics, is it sometimes a mixture of sea creatures that people know well how they look like, but also sea creatures which are mythical, which are legendary, which people think may lurk beneath the waves. Yeah, absolutely. So you get ideas about all kinds of weird and wonderful hybrid creatures. Or There's a sense that when you go down into the depths, you might get enormous, unfathomable species as well, that this is a sphere where precise zoological knowledge actually quite rapidly gives out and gives way to fantasy or speculation or terror, that kind of horrified obsession with what might be down there. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting how in the ancient world, when they think about the edges of the known world, as it were, and those edges of the known world are shrouded in myth and legend. It's also the edges of the sea world beneath what they know and how far they can go is also this place shrouded in myth and legend too. Absolutely. And in fact, you get many ancient theories about the edges of the world being ringed by Oceanus, by kind of the ocean, that there's a sense in which Opina very much emphasises the idea that the sea is sort of infinite and vast and nobody can possibly know what's actually in there. He says only the gods can know. And he's replaying this idea that this is a vast sphere that is well beyond mortal knowledge. It marks the boundaries of human ability to comprehend the world that we live in. Well, yeah, it's frightening in itself. Very frightening. And Let's go back to Oppian's Heliutica. 
it sounds like an amazing epic poem. How was it received by the emperor and in Roman times? We know very little about how it was received by the emperor. What we do have are probably Byzantine biographies of Oppian. So these really extrapolate from material that we find in the poem itself. So there's a moment where Oppian talks about a lobster and he says that they have a really profound attachment to their own little nook or cranny of the seabed. And if a fisherman takes that lobster out, takes them far away, uh, the lobster will scuttle back however long it takes to its own little den. And Oppian says, well, you know, we all know how awful it is when you're exiled or when you have to live out your life in a foreign land. And of course, the biographers seize on this and they create this story that Oppian was exiled himself with his father to an island because his father had not, his father was supposed to be a philosopher, had not sufficiently recognised the emperor's authority. And the biographers say that it was only when Oppian composed and presented the Haleutica to the emperor, and the emperor was so thrilled that he presented him with a golden coin for every line. And there are three and a half thousand lines in the poem, so it's quite a lot of coins, and then restored them both from exile. And you can see both in the biographies and also in the commentaries on the poem, in these lines on the lobster, they say, ah, he's riddling here. He's conveying a hidden truth. He's trying to tell us the real story of what's going on. So you can actually quite interestingly see that process of these biographies being extrapolated from what we get in the poem itself. But we certainly know that the very fact that we have all these biographies, we have these commentaries, epigrams, we have a prose paraphrase, and actually we have a poem penned in imitation of the Haleutica by a poet that we know is pseudo-Oppian about terrestrial hunting. So perhaps imitation is the wrong word, but homage, certainly. So we can see that very early on it became enormously influential. Because Oppian is so innovative in his language, we can trace that through imperial authors well into Byzantine times. So we have many, many declarations of admiration on the part of Byzantine authors. So Eustathius, who wrote this sort of magisterial commentary on the Homeric works, talks in absolutely laudatory terms about Oppian and really, really refers to him much more often than you might expect or than even was necessary. He seems to delight in making comparisons between Homer and Oppian. And so the huge number of manuscripts, we have over 17 manuscripts, all of this suggests, you know, phenomenal popularity. Well, it just begs the question, if he was so popular past Roman times into the Byzantine area, in, into the Middle Ages, why do so few people know about Oppian today? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we know that his popularity continued in certain quarters. So Julius Caesar Scaler just said that Oppian was the best poet from antiquity after Virgil, in his opinion, and, and he knew his <laughs> ancient authors. So clearly there's people who do read Oppian, very often love Oppian. So a lot of the translators and editors of Oppian talk about how extraordinary this work is. But I think the problem is partly that we don't know how to read didactic poetry, that we have a very romantic idea of what poetry ought to look like and that is that it ought to be spontaneous and genuine and born of you know our own emotions and passions and experiences so in the romantic view a poem that is based on a versification of prose treatises cannot be proper poetry so i think that's been very influential on what we think poetry ought to look like and actually you can trace the 18th and 19th century decline of didactic to a lot of these debates about how poetry ought to look and i think we still get confused 
by these questions of, well, you know, we have, first of all, assumptions that it must be dry and boring because it's didactic. And we use didactic almost as a slur nowadays. It's something that's sort of preachy or overtly educational and therefore not inherently gripping. But I think we just don't really understand who was reading this stuff in antiquity and why. We know it was phenomenally popular, but we struggle to understand that. And I think the final nail in Oppian's um, coffin for much of the 19th and 20th century was simply that it's late Greek, and particularly late Greek poetry. So if you've got a model where the height of sophistication of ancient Greek culture is the 5th century BC, and after that you see a decline, then you're not going to look to stuff from the 2nd century AD as being particularly sophisticated, which it absolutely is. It's incredibly complicated, sophisticated, elegant work. And there's been a gradual renaissance in, first of all, Hellenistic poetry, and then secondly, the prose literature of the imperial period. And now the poetry of this period is starting to be looked at afresh as well. So I think Oppian's time is very much coming. Exactly. But the nails in Oppian's coffin, they're being taken out. There is a revival in Oppian going on at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly this is the moment where people are increasingly interested in the relationship between humans and animals. And this is something that's very much part of our 21st century consciousness. So it ties in not only to looking afresh at imperial Greek literature, but thinking about questions of post-humanism and ideas about whether in the ancient world it was always the case that thinkers thought that humans were automatically superior to or at the top of a hierarchy or separated cognitively from other kinds of animals. And these are debates that are going on and they have a lot of energy at the moment. And I think Oppian actually speaks very much to these kinds of questions about what was the perceived relationship between humans and animals or humans and other kinds of non-humans, questions about agency in non-humans, things about the levels of sophistication of fish and other animals. Well, there you go. Oppian's time is coming once again. Emily, that was an amazing chat on Oppian sea creatures and everything to do with that. One last thing, your book is called? It's Oppian's Heliotico Charting a Didactic Epic and it's published this year with Cambridge University Press. Fantastic. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.